that's the part that every entrepreneurial founder is trying to actually get through that journey is to build a business that has its own heart that isn't just the founder anymore. And I think Rod's done a phenomenal job. Look at the share price since Rod's actually done that transition as well. Yeah, clearly I was holding the business back. (laughs) (laughs) Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora, I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of the Investment Team at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're going to be talking with two New Zealand tech companies that have chosen to IPO and go down the listing route as a way of funding their growth. With me to talk about that investment process, what it involved, the benefits and the challenges of such a public approach are Zero's founder, former CEO and director, Rod Drury, and Circo founder and CEO, Darren Grafton. Rod, Darren, welcome. Thanks, Dylan. Hey, Dylan. Now, you both pretty well beyond the old elevator pitch, but if you're introducing someone to Zero or Circo, how do you describe your business? And Rod, I might start with you. We're a small business platform. We got going in about 2006, and now I think we're two and a half million customers all over the world, and I think we're well over 3,000 staff now, which is a bit crazy. Fantastic. And what about you, Darren? We're a travel and expense platform, but our mission now is to connect buyers and sellers together to produce the world's first business travel marketplace. And I think our mission statement evolved as the business has actually grown globally as well. We have six offices and we're at about 270 now and we've got about 100 new positions active at the moment. You've both been on different but very large growth journeys to date. And so, Darren, maybe if you'd talk us through that growth journey for Circo. We started off in 2007, and the first part was to get around 30% market share in Australasia and then move through to that critical 50%. And so we achieved that in around 2012 to 2014, just before we listed. And we met up with Google, and Google set us a task of saying, hey, what would the world look like if you made it personal? And you blended business and leisure together, and you created a true unified travel experience around fly, stay, move, eat, work, play, and rest, those key modes of travel. And so we raised, of course, the capital to do that and to set that task in play, but we had to keep it secret because we couldn't afford for our competition to actually know what we were actually building underneath right the way through. So it's been a complex journey of taking a concept through to an eventual marketplace, but actually doing it without your competition actually knowing until the right time as well. So it's been a crazy way of actually adapting the model from 2007 right the way through to today. Big growth curve. And for you, Rod, you IPO'd on the back of a business plan and you've taken it a long way from there. Can you sort of just talk to us about that growth journey? What we did was quite different to other companies. At the time, we knew when we started our business, we needed about 50 people. You know, that's a half a million dollars of payroll per month. We needed probably two to three years. So we needed $15 million in the bank to really fund the business. At that time, New Zealand's biggest VC deal was probably two or three million. We might have raised 10 or 15 in the US at that time, but then VCs would have owned most of the business. 
So at that time, the only thing we could do was to tell a big story and do an IPO. And we only did that because of what Jeff Ross did at 42 Below. We'd seen that model before. So we didn't follow all of the traditional things. As a systems person, you really think about how systems work. And what we've done, I think, is we've kind of hacked our way all the way through on the public markets. And then you find some really interesting stuff, like what we found a few years in is, and I think the rules have changed now, but you can issue up to 25% of your market cap every year without doing a really big process back to shareholders. So that gave us this continuous funding stream working all the way through. And then the strategy of getting really good investors onto your register at the right time. And we've now gone through a phase where we've moved our register from growth investors that want you to push really, really hard now into big, stable, long-term holders, which gives us stability, which protects the share price for all of our shareholders as well. So all the way through, as a systems person, you're kind of hacking the system. And that was quite fun because I don't think there's been a lot of that kind of systems thinking applied to the capital markets, but because we didn't really know them when we started and we were systems people, we were always thinking about, well, what are the rules? What can we do? What's the right thing to do? How can we lead by example, apply our values into the process? And that's worked out really well for us. I'd say we've definitely followed exactly what Rod's talked about. You're constantly looking at how your next pivot's about to occur. We call it the two-year model of our five years. So we're going, what do we need to do in the next two years? How's our cash modeling looking? What do we need to actually adjust right now, two years ahead? So we're never going to put the business in a distressed state. We're going to be always looking two years out. And that's the cleverness of using the systems right. You're constantly going, where am I growing ahead? You heard Rod say he, he raised money for three years out. That's the key part. You're always looking at the cash model that takes you on that growth journey to take on the competition or to get to that next point in the market. So for us, we've had those key pivotal points as well, booking.com coming on and being a cornerstone investor in us and then enabling us to build out the booking for business platform globally. You know, it's a huge opportunity. And so we then took on another 67.5 million now, which we know takes us through to that next wave. And so we're always taking one more step ahead at the right time and you're doing it in such a way that the investors come on the journey and they see the execution. I think the key part is that you use the capital exactly how you've modelled it in a way to get to that next point and you are hacking the system through and using that 20-25% market cap. We used it in the COVID time. We still had capital in the bank but we used the COVID model to get the capital in right now because we could see that we needed to move fast and every day was important. It's a way of just continually doing it. You can do it incredibly fast. I think we did that within eight days from start to finish. Fantastic. I love it. Systems thinking inside capital markets. I want to take you both back in time now to when you're making that decision for that first time to IPO and make that step. Why did you choose to list over other forms of capital raising? The only way we could raise enough money to fund a business of the scale that we imagined was to go public. It probably is different now because there's so much money looking for a home at a term of low interest rates. And this was a big light bulb moment for me when we started sort of pitching to raise money. And there are people whose job it is to go and raise these big funds and only get paid when they deploy capital. So the audience that you're selling to, if you can give them a reason that it's safe for them to invest in you, that's when they're going to invest. And they want to put much more money in than you would think. Like if you've got like $100 million in your fund, 
you don't want to do 52 million dollar deals you know ideally you'd probably do four 25 million dollar deals because there's less work to do so once you realize that two-sided dynamic that was quite important fantastic and what about you darren as the very similar sort of side to write it. It's really hard to get to that next step in New Zealand doing private equity. And it normally comes with some massive fish hooks. And in fact, we had, I think, six options running simultaneously that we were trying to balance through, whether we exited to a competitor, whether we took funding in from suppliers at the time, or we went private equity and complete sellout at the time. And so we actually listed, I think, for just under half what one of the offers was. We chose that because the team wanted to actually commit to doing it ourselves. They wanted to still be in control of their destiny. And it was a whole part of taking this business forward. And at that time, it was the way that you got the capital cleanly and to execute the strategy you knew about without somebody actually distracting you. So you had to have the right board and you had to have the right processes in place. And that took us a a wee while to get that model done. Yeah, it was a choice. And I think that's the whole time you're weighing up. You're weighing up what's the consequence of the capital. And a lot of the times it does come with fish hawks or it's not enough to actually execute the strategy. With the public markets, even though it may not be exactly enough, you know, if you've executed to the right path, you can then grab the next chunk based on you've got that momentum forward, your stock's increased, hopefully. Didn't always work out that way, of course, the stock went down. You know, it took a while to pivot through that and you've got to work through that side of it as well. (laughs) We often tout a couple of the benefits from going down the listing route as the additional profile for the company, but there's a shadow side to that profile. What I probably didn't know at the beginning was how much your life changes, especially in a small country, when you do a data company public. So the personal scrutiny that you have through a period of time. And it was at the time media moved to page views. So for years and years and years, we'd be in the paper or in the online business news every day. And the amount of comments that you would get like every single day. So I think a big thing is getting thick skinned about it. But the other side of it is at the time, I remember when we used to have to advertise in the national paper, it was like 25 grand for a half page ad. So if a journalist phoned up and asked me about interest rates, which I have no idea about, I'd, of course I'd make a comment. So I was thinking I'm saving 25 grand every time. So you do end up moving from just worried about tech and building a great team to actually becoming quite a public sort of thing. And it does mean that you build that kind of toughness and you can use that voice to do some really good things as well. But I remember when I retired from zero full time, that was the end of Twitter for me. I was off. I was done. I'd agree with Rod. The media likes to take you down as fast as they will take you up as well. So you have to be incredibly thick-skinned. That level as a, a founder and a CEO inside there, you have to be completely resilient around that. And it is the hardest thing to get used to, dealing with that media pressure that's coming in. And then that creates other pressures around from that. Yeah, it's quite incredible, really. Learning to deal with that is probably one of the biggest steps that you'll have as a public CEO. And I know talking to other listed companies and CEOs, you, you kind of mentor them through that first part and say, hey, you know, be aware, it's going to get pretty tough before it gets easy. Hey, I, I just want to talk about the process for a second, the IPO process. It's a big undertaking. So sorry, I can, I can save some time here. Like everyone goes, how expensive is all that sort of stuff? It's usually done on a contingency basis and the ability to go and raise money, not just in the IPO, but in subsequent raises when you're a public company, it's so cheap to go and do it. 
and you're getting the capital to execute strategy and you don't have to do all the work. Well, if you decide to do it, you hire great people, great advisors, you know, squish them hard on fees, but it is what it is. But it gets you into a place where you can get the capital to execute strategy and a low cost way to raise capital through the life of the business. I think we raised 15 million on our first and now, you know, we've just raised, I think, 900 million. We still paid some fees for that, but it actually doesn't matter at the end of the day. So if you want to go big, going public is an amazing thing to do. Not the right thing for everybody or for every business, but it's certainly a viable thing. And I think Darren and I approve that. Yeah, and Rod's right. The advisors that come along for that first IPO will take most of the risk with you. And yes, if you fail to raise, you're going to be up for a portion of that cost probably. A lot of the major costs are based on the success of closing of the round and getting the money in the door. That's where your big brokerage fees come into play. With a public company, I think the key thing to understand is that you're always in kind of not active due diligence. You're public, so your numbers are there. So you don't have to go through another due diligence process. You, you do have to make sure what you've got is cleansed. And so you have a what's called a cleansing process to make sure everything that's material is known at the market at the time. But Apart from that, that's just a process of because you're a public company, because you're going through monthly and you've got the robust processes in place, it is incredibly fast. And that ability to raise 40, 50 million, 60 through that process as you're going through that journey is there. The hard one is the first, is just getting understanding and learning it. Probably your first two feel a little bit freaky, but like Rock said, doing 900 million, well, bring it. <laughs> and the uh, key thing is the IPO is not the end of the process, it's the start of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so true, Rod. You all owned 100% of Zero and Circo beforehand, and then you've open up the public markets and you've sold down over time. How have you determined how much stake you're willing to give up and what's gone into that decision making? I don't have a set view on it. Originally, it was to stop someone taking over it because of the level of interest that was there at the time. So it was to keep a blocking point. But then as you build a board and a team that can actually balance that risk, you become less worried about that and you worry more about that execution forward. So for me, I've always been prepared to have a small piece of a big pie as long as I'm executing through onto that journey. So I don't actually have a number. The number I find is irrelevant. The numbers and the money and all of those sort of things just follow execution. So there's no number for me uh, at all. For me, it's all about moving forward. That's why we gave 40% to the staff. We, we did that from day one. So we never really had 100%, I guess, in our case. <laughs> One of the hardest things I think that the industry has in going public is a lot of the institutions originally didn't like the founders selling down stock. That relief of being able to release some stock, and you kind of got to do it and not care. So you kind of got to actually do what's right for you. And it takes a few years as a public company because you've got everyone saying, don't sell. Why would you sell? But actually, the selling of that is to relieve that little bit of pressure that enables you to focus because when you've got multiple things at you at the same time, and it could be home life or financial, you need to be able to clear those things to focus. And people don't necessarily realize that. And that's the same for every person inside the team. So enabling them to actually release that, and that's actually okay to sell some and then move on, but it gives them the ability to have this nest egg. And for a lot of developers and testers and receptionists in the business, and like Rod said, these people that have bought shares in your business, they end up making money and their lives become better. And that is the cool part of building a public company out there and driving it forward is that you get to 
touch so many lives through how they work. And they're the ones generating the benefit for you because they're doing the hard slog across multiple areas of the business. And what about you, Rod? Yeah, we're the same. Oh, a small piece of a big pie is always better. And I think people that are control freaks who want to use their percentage to keep control of the company, ultimately there's an attitude there which is probably mean you're not going to be successful. People are probably thinking of 20 examples where I'm wrong on that. But in general, where I've seen people that, that use percentages and focus on that, then they're not backing themselves to really grow and bring people alongside them. I've been doing, doing it for quite a while now, but, you know, just sort of checked on my phone. When we started, you know, we raised our first bit of money. It was at a $55 million Kiwi valuation. And as I just looked on my Apple stocks app, we're at $19 billion Australian market cap. So it's been a pretty wild ride. And I think the exciting thing about what's happening now is we're seeing the next generation of the leaders that we built just doing stunning work. Like Kirsty Godfrey-Billy, our CFO, she just put together a $900 million convertible notes offer, some really sophisticated financing in this part of the world. And that which gives us this massive war chest to use our ability now as a global company to do all sorts of exciting stuff. So I think what's exciting about the journey, you know, we went through that very early startup phase, that hyper growth stage, then that scaling and building all sorts of structures and offices offshore, and as well as doing all of those things and the people side of that and organizational structure that allows you to manage a business when it's spread across a whole of different geos. And now as one of Australasia's top public companies, using that aspect of being a public company to execute our strategy. So really interesting how zeros just change every sort of three or four years in these quite different phases. That's a good point. We talked a little bit about the ability to tap for follow-on funding along the way that once you're listed is another benefit. A couple of other benefits. One is the ability to use it as a currency for M&A. And I know, Darren, you've done that. We talk about being part of a group. We look for acquisitions in a lot of cases to say, hey, if, if you're joining us, we're on a vision to build a multi-billion dollar business. So you can come in now and you can be part of that story. So we would rather give you stock than cash because cash, you're going to lose the upside. If you actually believe in your journey with us, then why not take stock? And it enables us to execute a better path forward. And it gives you that ability to look at businesses and actually bring them into the whole group, have them all aligned. And it's a quick way of testing out, I find, whether the people do believe in their forecasts or they believe in what their team can actually do. Because if they're prepared to take maybe not all of it, but a, a good chunk of it in stock, you know that they've got a hook to push their team and, and push themselves um, further as well. And they're kind of aligned to everything. I mean, we were quite different in that we gave 40% of the company to the team and every single person comes in as a shareholder. And so we kind of have this, we're in it together mentality through driving this. So we do use the stock as currency for acquisitions and to create a model of thinking around how we're trying to drive that strategy and the understanding of the why you're at Circo, why you're part of that group, I guess. And you've done similar, Rod, anything to add? Yeah, we've always had staff and shareholders and, and when we've done acquisitions for stock, usually the founders we acquired do many, many times better 
being on the stock because we're doing good acquisitions that grow the value of the whole thing. Yeah, we see that as a you know big part of us going forward. That's why we've just raised a whole lot of money. You know, we're cash flow positive now, but we've raised a big war chest, partly to have a big war chest because so much uncertainty in the world at the moment. But there's also some really good opportunities. And what's super interesting, actually, like when we first get started, I think the goal of a founder is to sort of make some money and to have the relief of actually getting to an exit. I've exited a few times now. I remember being up in a ballroom when the CEO of Quest was speaking and they just required aftermail. And so you kind of think you get up to level 10 because you'd sold your business and it was all great. But then you realize that you were a pawn in his game and then suddenly level 11 presents itself when it was like, actually, wouldn't it be fun to be able to have the capital to execute strategy and actually have acquisitions as part of strategy? So I really enjoy buying companies now, but for a long time, you're just thinking, you know, at the top of the mountain was building your business up to sell, to get some cash. But if you've done that a few times, then you kind of realize, well, someone's buying you. Why are they doing that? Because they're playing this much bigger game. So I always love the sport of it. And I remember being in that ballroom, watching Vinny speaking, it was like, oh, the next thing I'm going to do a public company. That'd be really cool. <laughs> It's the same thing, Rod. It's like, I think it's the most amazing thing is playing that game of chess and actually thinking when you don't actually have to exit. I think that's really hard probably for new people coming in and it's their first one because they're going, hey, I want the windfall or I want that exit. But like Rod, I've done it a couple of times now. And so you now go, well, wouldn't it be cool to be the acquirer, not the acquiree? And how cool would it be to keep building businesses like this, like Rod did for us? What he paved forward has inspired us to follow very similar sort of steps forward. And so we're hoping what we do follows what Rod's done and people can go, hey, we can relate to that and we don't need to exit. Our staff look at it now and they go, how we can sell our stock if we need to, to pay our mortgage off and we still have our stock, you know, still have enough left and and we can then wait for the next round. So they no longer think about having to sell the whole lot. And God, the interest rates are so low, so you can't get much return anyway, but why not build a big business? It seems the right thing to do now. It's so exciting when you get to this point where it's really hard work. I, I traveled so much for 12 years and you kind of feel like you accordion like a full career into a shorter amount of time because these businesses like Darren and I are 24-7. They're a roller coaster. You can't get off every six months. And in the US, it's every quarter. You've got to have those results where every dollar that you've spent gets judged on. Every deal that you've made and everything you've done, all your strategy gets judged every six months very, very publicly. And so you're just under this incredible pressure for a long amount of time. But then at the end of it, you find that there are people that are great at managing large teams. They aspirationally want to do that. And also you're of a size. We can hire enough people that it's sustainable for people to do that as well, even though it's still really hard work. And then you get to this bit where you get to work on the strategy, building really good boards and the interest of working with super smart people. You still get to work on your baby, but you're not having to do that really hard travel and just that relentless work. This next phase, and it sounds like Darren's getting to a point where he's entering that as well, is really exciting. You know, you meet people like Stephen Tindall who have done that for years where he's able to focus on a whole lot of other things but still contributes to the strategy of his business as well, and it's a great place to be. Last year I did 122 flights, and I've been doing that since I was 18, building different businesses, and it is relentless, and you suddenly realise that actually the 122, power... you part-timer? Yeah. I know. <laughs> It's COVID, you know. <laughs> what you realise is that if you can actually get and employ people that 
think kind of like you where your market managers become thinkers around acquisitions and can drive things together you then have 12 or 14 people that have the same power as you and so you're empowering them to think and so when they rebuild the strategies or they they go up and they challenge the thinking and they get aligned to the why they actually understand why they drop something in and why the pressures actually occur and we're going through that early stage of that of realigning the executives and everybody in the global markets to start thinking this way. And then they're able to execute those deals within market, which means that you don't actually have to travel as much or that pressure that's constant, because it is. You're the one that's on stage. You're the one that's going through that whole part because you're the face of it. And you can enable other people to share that face time. And I think that's the part that shifts a business into a big organization because you no longer become the single point of failure. For the business as well. And so I think that's the part that every entrepreneurial founder is trying to actually get through that journey is to build a business that has its own heart, that isn't just the founder anymore. And I think Rod's done a phenomenal job. I mean, look at the look at the share price since Rod's actually done that transition as well. Yeah, clearly I was holding the business back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's really interesting is most businesses never get to these sort of stages. And it may be timing. It might be personalities, could be a whole lot of flaws, and none of us are anywhere near perfect. I think the trick is understanding that it's all about building a great team and building a diverse team where you've got complementary skills and uh, you've got people, you know, we can have a really good debate and be wrong. You know, I always make a big deal of when I'm wrong because it's important. I'll say very clearly in a meeting, you're absolutely right, I'm wrong, because you've got to train people that they can push back and answer because then you end up with a much better result. So I think once you've kind of learned those skills around your job as a CEO is to hire great people because you can't do everything yourself and your job is always curating that team to in a very human way where people haven't scaled to a certain point or aren't the right personality type. Maybe it's not even their fault, it's just the dynamics of other people. You have to be pretty ruthless about making the call to get them out and very human about moving them on to the next thing. So something I would always do with really good senior staff is I would phone up other CEOs and say, hey, look, I've got a person that's coming free. They're not the right person for us now, but they could be awesome for your businesses. Here's the bits they do well and the bits that they could do with some coaching on or put them into these roles because I wanted to make sure that everyone had a good experience and became this alumni of fans moving forward. And those are the hardest things to do. But if you don't do it, then when you go and stand in front of everybody in the six months and you're not making your numbers, then it's your fault. So you've got to be very decisive about that team and it's going to change over time and fast over time because business is evolving so quickly and then at some point quite early on actually each individual will be much better than you i mean i'd never get a job at zero now but um when i look at what our team is doing and the world-class work and as i mentioned you know kirsty before i mean that's one of the most spectacular fundraising things that we've seen i thought i did a pretty good job raising 180 million over a weekend with ross jenkins once we got totally blown out of the water with what Kirsty's just achieved over the last month. And just watching her on the phone calls, she is super impressive. And, and that was one of the coolest moments of seeing our people doing absolutely world-class work, much better than what I ever did when I was in the seat. You just talked a little bit about diversity of team, but have you been deliberate around diversity of investors? You sort of touched on investors early on that were after growth, growth, growth to now where you've managed to diversify that out and you've got some more long-term institutional 
investors. Have you been deliberate about trying to seek sort of diversity on your shareholding registers or has it just been a carte blanche? No, it's very strategic, but it wasn't that we understood the strategy when we started. A lot of it was we were learning as we went along. So we did everything backwards. We IPO'd first, then we had hedge funds and our later rounds were actually VCs because the VC market had changed where they want to put money in and multiply it very, very quickly. So we did everything backwards. But then we understood as systems thinkers why that was the case. So when we saw hedge funds coming through, that was because hedge funds as VCs did later and later stage deals and angels did what used to be VC deals, hedge funds got squeezed out of pre-IPO. So what they started to do was to look around the world at listed companies off the main boards who had good governance, they had good numbers, and they were prepared to fly around and actually meet all these founders. So we started having hedge funds coming and finding us. So we quite quickly got a bunch of those on the board. And they were so good for us. They are so much more aggressive around helping you, evaluating your management team. They need to know more about your company than anyone else. So they're in talking to our competitors and talking to us. And they'll tell us, they're like, that person's not performing. You've got the right person in the role. You need to change. So they're having hedge funds and really hardened us up. And I learned so much out of that. But as soon as they can see their growth rates growing because you're becoming a more stable company, they're out. So they love you, love you, love you until they don't love you. But then you realize there's these much more stable funds once you're profitable and you know, you've got a few quarters of profitability generating cash. Then there's these other monster funds that have to invest in you. Then you get into these big indexes where if they're not on you and you're still a fast growing company, then their numbers look bad. So that's what's just happened with us. We're now in this big index. So these massive international funds have to come and invest. So there's you know millions of shares that need to be brought. It's just a really fascinating journey that changes all the time and understanding people's motivations or investors' motivations is the key to be talking to the right people. And what about you, Darren? How deliberate have you been about building your shareholder register? We've been pulling through some of the strategic investors behind the scenes, some of the big tech giants have invested in their personal funds and also we've had booking come in as a cornerstone and that kind of was for credibility when the biggest company in our sector in the world is endorsing your technology and putting their brand which is everything they own is booking.com you know they've invested 25 years and a couple of billion a year in advertising on that brand and they're putting that on your technology that was an incredibly powerful statement so to have investors like that that are prepared to put their capital and their brand on your technology takes you to that next level it gives you an endorsement that helps other investors understand what you're actually doing when they couldn't understand it before. And that brings a whole new set of investors through each of those journeys. And we're still in that growth phase. So we're still getting a lot of the funds around into that early stage. And it's more so since we've crossed into the NZX50. So we're in that first part of getting into an index, people having to buy in, the growth funds coming in. And as you saw, I think we're four to five times oversubscribed on the 67 mil raise. You're starting to get that part of demand coming in and it's stabilizing the stock price now a little bit more because it's definitely been like a heartbeat. Let's talk about that sort of oversubscription. So you've both had massively oversubscribed capital raises, but beyond being just a company with great growth potential, what else has been key to establishing yourself as a really attractive investment? Story. As a founder, entrepreneur, you've got to be a really good storyteller. 
and the story has to make sense and be delivered on. But the key part with an investor is that they want to be part of the journey. A lot of investors or institutions will actually talk about our company. So when they buy in, they are a shareholder and they say, what are we doing next? So we hear a lot of those sort of terms and they really come in and they listen to the journey, they align to that and they want to be part of that story, especially in this growth phase. So I think as an entrepreneur, being that storyteller that is telling enough, but not so much that you're ahead of it and then executing to deliver. And then they start to go, oh, that's how it works. So you're not kind of giving everything away. You don't tell them you've got the start of the thing. You've got chapter one and they're ready to read chapter two. And they're going, what, what what's chapter two going to look like? And they want the numbers and they want everything. So you're creating that. And that's kind of what I learned. Try never to get them to that end point so that an institution is is coming along for the journey that you're on that you see in that passion. And I think that's the difference with, I think, founder-led businesses where they have a CEO in there is that they can actually tell that journey. Of course, it moves on through there, but definitely in that early stage. And what about you, Rod? Yeah, it's the same thing. As Darren said, it's all about telling a story. And now that I've done the transition, I've got great people that can tell maybe a slightly different story because we're in a different thing. It's now about how you build that global leadership team, the platform story more, and then just out of size, you just start to push it around. It's a big thing that is pushing all of your people out so they are out there as ambassadors and they can see it's not just one person, it's the team. Because there's still this crazy thing about the founder being so important. They're not. They're the crazy person that got it going and yet they're there. But it's actually the really hardworking career people that actually keep the wheels from falling off. And yes, the founder will come in and just push on a few things and keep ownership of the vision. But the senior leadership team are smart people as well. People always ask the question of how involved is Rod? I'm not. I'm mountain biking. Steve's doing a great job, but we'll catch up every few weeks. And and we've got a very active board that's having an active discussion. And if things we see stuff, we'll go in and we'll talk. But, you know, these things are actually about a team of great people. But there is this American fascination about a founder. Founders are super important in those early years. Then it's about a great team once you get into that midsize and beyond. Yeah, I think that Rod sums it up, being that conductor and enabling that team to get to their rhythm and to shine, that's the most phenomenal part of that journey and getting them into that level where they can talk and be part of that and articulate the strategy in their way and how they're going to pull it forward. That's the part, that's the special source. The special source, I like it. Now, 2020 has been a year like no other for a lot of businesses. What's the impact of COVID meant for Zero and for Circo? So we now are operating in a quite a different world. The positive impact of COVID on us selfishly is for people like Darren and myself to stop traveling for a year. In the middle of our careers, we actually have this complete reset where you can have time to think, not travel. One of our big offices is in Melbourne. That's been locked down for far longer than New Zealand. We've completely rechanged the way we work. We're completely rethinking what our offices look like in the future where we still have the pandemic out of control. UK going into lockdown, parts of the states into lockdown, and that just doesn't look like it's going to be a good place for a long time. So rethinking how things work where you're not in offices. So while in New Zealand, we do have people collaborating around offices, we still have big chunks of our global team that haven't been together for most of the year. So there's just now a really big reset around strategy with this massive change but it's also been an acceleration of everyone going online. Yeah, and I reiterate Rod's thing on COVID, 92% of our revenue wiped off. 
in that first month. And you sit there and you think, I've been here before. I've been here with September the 11th. I've been here with the GFCs, but never to this extreme. But it's a moment in time that you can look for the opportunity. But you know your teams are going to go through a state of fear as well. And globally, they're going to be in different situations all the way through this journey. So you actually have to help lead them through that. But you're actually looking the whole time for the opportunity. And I think for us, the most critical point was not restructuring the business downwards. And in a crisis where you've lost most of your revenue, most businesses would cut. And I think what happens when you have this structured way of looking at how you're building these scenarios forward, we built a model that had a GFC in it. So we actually built our model imagining a worst case scenario. And I think when you build businesses, you actually do think about the bad things so that you can plan forward and have enough cash to go through those sort of cycles. And we've been open to say we did a no revenue budget. We went, okay, well, let's imagine if there's no revenue. And then we can now concentrate as an executive team with every month is better than where we started because we did a no revenue budget, which means that we're always better. And every time we're getting excited about every step forward. We just announced, I think, yesterday to the market that we're hitting days now where the market's recovered to 50%. And that's incredibly exciting. But a year ago, we were looking at growth, say, 5% a month on month. And our team talked about for the first time in most people's career, we had to downscale a cloud environment. And that was incredible to go down 90%. And then on a given day, we had to bounce three to 400% immediately after scaling down the cost and scaling up. So incredible. COVID has just been an incredible learning process as well, both for how you actually have to just keep calm. I always say you control what you control. It is what it is. You just can't control borders closing, governments doing things, but what your team do through this is going to be more important in how we manage our teams through this because it is going to be a totally new world that we live in. Let's jump to the future then. You both raised a big war chest. Circo, you've just raised $67 million. Rod, you've got 900 that you've just raised. What's the future look like for Circo? What does the future look like for Zero? For Circo, we're building that global marketplace. So we want to build the world's first business travel marketplace. It doesn't exist and there's no one who has the capacity to do it apart from ourselves. So we're in a unique position that our competition are conflicted in the model. They're either owned by global distribution systems or in the likes of SAP. And so they have a conflicted channel alignment to be able to enable that to occur. So we've aligned with the biggest player in the world, which has the biggest content channel being booking.com as well. So our first phase is to get around a million small businesses as Rod had on the travel program and we'll migrate around close to 700,000 of those and then we'll connect the content into that. We've got to build phenomenal tech. We want to build tech that people love. So CX and UX are, are so important. I think Rod shares that same vision is that if you can build technology that people talk about and want to use and want to come back to. Because if, if I can create a, a process where I can leave from home and come back from my journey and AI and travel takes all of that care of my whole journey. When I'm in the air, it rebooks me because it knows my patterns. And I just have this total simple journey and I don't have to do an expense report and it's all filed into zero and everything works well. 
then that's my utopia. My utopia is that it just makes everything simple. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to make complex simple. It's an incredibly complex industry, but build fantastic technology that makes it simple, that people just don't realize the complexity underneath. Fantastic. What about for zero? The big thing for us is rethinking what the world looks like, which is a big internal issue as well as how our customers work too. It's good having cash in the bank to do that. We'll continue to invest in platforms as we got to a size. We will do more M&A as part of our strategy, but we can also invest in more innovation as well to have our ultimate visions like Darren's talking about. We have very clear things of that that we want to do and we have the capital to do that. But then the gating factor is how do you get enough staff to be able to do those amazing things and hire them We have never actually met them. So it's a really interesting few years coming up. But I think there's never been a more interesting time to be building global businesses from New Zealand. Well, that seems like the perfect place to end. Looking to a future where there's never been a more interesting time to build global businesses from New Zealand. Rod, Darren, there's been so many great insights in what you've shared today. In particular, taking that systems thinking approach to raising capital, IPOs just being the beginning of the process and for being real enablers for accessing the capital you need to build big businesses and take them to the world. I love that excitement that you've both got reaching new levels of growth, new stages for your company. Love the concept too that you've both got about the acquirees turning acquiror. More importantly, I look forward to seeing what happens next. Darren, Rod, thank you so much for giving us your insight today. Kia ora, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.